Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water, to support women as leaders in the conservation movement, to ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is Lisa Salyer. Hey, Lisa. Hey. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Excited to be here. I would ask you what the weather's like, but you and I are both in Tennessee, so I think I know what it's like. <laughs> it's hot. Uh, and our guest today is Melody Hagee. Hey, Melody. Hey. Thank you so much for joining us. Where are you located? I'm in Minnesota, so a lot of people who've read the Little House in the Prairie books know the big woods, and we live right by, just not too far from the Mississippi, and right across the river is um, Pepin, where Laura Ingalls Wilder was raised, and so we always say that we live in the Minnesota big woods, because it's kind of all one wood system. Oh, that's so cool. I grew up in Minnesota, not too far from there, actually. Oh, cool. Neat little connection there. Well... (laughs) Melody, the first guess we, or excuse me, the first question we often ask our guests is, what's in your freezer? Well, right now, there's not as much because, so we have two big chest freezers. Um, I think we have like over 20 cubic feet of space in both of them. So there's the the rest of our, one of our hogs in there. We raise meat, um, pigs for meat and rabbits for meat. And then do the rest is all from hunting. So there's the the leftover ground venison. We've been out of venison roast for quite a while now. Even though we had six deer in the freezer from last season, between my husband and I, uh, we don't we go through it a lot because we have five kids. So if we want to have meat, we don't we don't like to buy meat from the through that venison pretty quickly. And then there's also my husband's favorite. I always keep deer blood because I'm training a scent tracking dog for recovering deer. and he thinks it's so creepy and my kids they'll be like oh is it frozen juice and I'm like no no (laughs) so yeah that's super cool okay I have so many questions just based on that small amount of information number one what kind of hogs do you raise well right now we're trying an old world Hungarian breed called Mangalitsa so they actually um they they kind of look like a mix between a sheep and a pig. They're really super ugly, but they've got curly, like curly woolly fur. And the reason we went with them was because I do all of the, like I render all of the lard from the pigs and that's basically the only cooking oil we use. And um, I wanted a, a pig that had really good clean lard production. So a lot of times you just use the leaf lard, which is the lard that's like surrounding the organs and all that. Mm-hmm. And with this pig, they just, they're a lard pig. They produce a lot of really good, high quality fat that you can render down. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, so we got two of those in the winter. I just kind of hounded Craigslist for a while and was watching throughout the winter. Cause I had read that a lot of people will just give away livestock in the winter cause they get tired of feeding them and housing them. And I actually got these pigs for free. So um, and I got them when they were six months old They're because they're an old world breed. They take longer to finish out, um, cause they're not like genetically modified to grow really fast. And then I also have three pigs that I got from the Amish that are just regular conventional pigs. That is so cool. We, so the last deer that we got, it was actually a roadkill deer. I rendered 
the fat from it and oh I don't know if I did it too hot or what I just need to use it for lotion but it smells you know like I put it on myself and then like, I smell like cooked yeah. well there's a there's a trick to rendering fat so you can't you can't just like leave it if you want to render fat that is actually doesn't smell and, and doesn't get like super greasy but maintains a really good structure um, you can't just cook it down. You, you basically babysit it for hours. You put it on the stovetop on really low and every time a little bit of fat renders out, you scoop it out of there, strain it and let it cool. And so when I'm rendering, it's like an entire day's worth of sitting in front of the stove. Sometimes I'll do it on a slow cooker, but I'm still sitting there the entire time making sure I'm scooping it out. But I get, we get so much lard doing it that way. Um, and then the crackling, so the pieces left over goes to the, the the dogs or the cats. Okay, yeah. So the chunks that you're putting in there to rent, like what's the ratio of meat to fat on the chunks that you put in the pot or the slow cooker? Um, for what I've been rendering, it's all basically all fat and whatever tissue is within the fat because okay. um, it's leaf lard. So the, the lard that the, the fat that surrounds the organs. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so it's not like attached to a muscle group. Gotcha. Um, and then I don't, I haven't rendered like muscle fat yet because the last pig we got, we actually bought the pig from the Amish and they had already, um, they send it to a processor that like does the, does all of the processing for it. And except for like, it doesn't, they don't make the hams. And then they just give me this huge bag of leaf lard it kind of looks like popcorn like that size wow okay so so you gotta start with the cream of the crop and then you literally have to skim the equivalent of the cream as you go (laughs) yeah and you just cook it down and cook it down and um i think the last i had about the equivalent of a five gallon pail worth and i ended up getting about four quarts of rendered um, fat off of that so it's a pretty tedious process, but then we use it for everything from, you know, potatoes to eggs to pie crusts or cookies or scones. Sure. Well, that's good info to have. I'm always looking for, I don't know, we'd buy the expensive butter and taste good, but it's a lot of money. Yeah, we replace um, a lot of butter with lard because I don't have a cow. So I, butter isn't sustainable for me. Yeah, makes sense. Lisa, do you want to, do you have any thoughts that you want to jump in with? Uh, No, I am just taking notes and um, this is all very interesting. Well, the other thing that caught my ear, Melody, you said you got six deer between you and your husband. I want to know about that. My husband and I have a young daughter. She's 14 months old and I've been trying to take her into the field with me as much as possible, but it's really hard. So can you talk about that? Yeah, well, last year, um, so some of the some of the deer were from party hunting that my husband does with his brothers and his cousins, and um, a lot of them just they hunt, but they're not so into the meat. And so when they're party hunting, my husband will just like end up bringing home more deer. Um, I think he took two himself last year, and I actually only got one because I've decided I'm only using the traditional bow, and. Um, yeah, this last year I actually got a, a the matriarch doe out of the group I was following, and uh, I got her at about 27 yards on a spot and stock hunt that I, I had seen her at just over 80 yards, and I was able to close in 
that and get her with my bow in one shot, double long. So that was pretty cool. That is amazing. That, that is awesome. <laughs> that's like a 10 year goal for me, I would say. Well, okay. So I started hunting with a traditional bow. Let's see the end of the season in 2019. And then I realized I just didn't know enough and I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it, not do it well. So I stopped hunting and just started studying like crazy. And then in fall of 2020, I my year, I feel like my years are all messed up because like 2020 lasted for like five years, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. but it was actually just fall of 2020. I got my first year with a traditional bow. And so the first, first year I had set myself a goal. I just want to get anything with this bow. And so I got a deer, um, down right down from my kitchen window I had set up a signal with for my kids where I would sit not even maybe 150 yards off where I could see the kitchen window and then my husband was working nights at that time so he was actually there he just wasn't awake you know and my oldest daughter she's old enough to to help with stuff and I didn't have any babies anymore so um if they needed me to get out of my stand and run up I'm like you're not allowed to yell unless it's an emergency but you just have to flick the kitchen lights off and on a few times and I'll see it and I'll get out and I'll come up, come right up. And so that was the system we had set up. And like, I had to wake up at like, you know, three 30 in the morning or something ridiculous. Cause I wanted to make breakfast for everybody that they, they could just grab when they woke up so that I could sit. And then I would only ever sit in my stand until about seven 30 or eight in the morning because I'm a homeschool mom. So then I would come in and we would do school. And, um, it was first light, this uh, group of deer started coming through and I saw the second doe that was coming was a, a fairly good size. And so I drew back on her as she came walking through and she spooked because at that point, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I had mm -hmm. never even bow hunted. So I didn't know about like hiding my draw. Mm. And so I just like very exuberantly drew back and this doe spooks, but then everybody else spooked in the other direction. And so I figured she would try to go back and join her group if I was still and she wouldn't pick me out of the tree canopy above. And that's exactly what happened. And then I was able to get her. And that was super cool because my kids were all right there. So then they all came down right away and helped me like they were there for gutting it and everything and helping me drag it out of the woods. So that was the coolest experience because like I think a lot of people miss out on some of the biggest joys of hunting if they're not bringing their kids with or at least having their kids experience a big part of it. It mm -hmm. always adds another level of complication because your schedule is tighter. You have a lot more limited ability to be out there. And then when you are out there, especially if you bring kids with your time is it never looks the way you think it's going to. Um, yeah, but that first year, my goal was just get a deer. And then the second year, my goal was take a deer from the ground with my recurve and I was able to make that happen too so that was super cool I'm in awe right now okay I have another question so when um you just described the first doe that you took it sounds like you had to be at full draw for quite a while while she decided to come back through is that right yeah okay so she spooked out but then she went behind a pile of deadfall and I could see her tail sticking out and so like when she was coming, she was coming from the West going towards the East and she spooked into this pile of deadfall, but she looked back at the deer that were running off and she's behind that. So she can't actually see me. 
And so now she's facing west again, going back to join the other group. And as her head was behind there, I had let down and was waiting um, because I could still see her tail. And I'm like, okay, when her tail disappears, I'm going to draw again. And um, that's what happened. So when her tail disappeared, I drew. And then it was like three steps later, her vitals were in like my perfect spot. The problem is I didn't, I didn't stop her. She was still actively walking. And so I ended up shooting high, but it, um, she still, she dropped immediately cause I cut her spinal cord and then I climbed down cause I could see she was not going to be able to move. So I, it was like within 20 seconds of that shot, I went down and did a vitals kill shot. Wow. That's amazing. I shoot well, a compound bow. Cool. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Um, <laughs> yeah. Heck of a story. I, Lisa and I both archery hunt. Lisa, how long have you been archery hunting? Oh my goodness. Maybe about 12 years, but that is self-learned and, uh, self-taught and lots of mistakes. And I still feel like I'm very much a beginner. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. I bought my first bow, I guess it was in 2012, but I, yeah, still feel like I'm just starting. So, so it's it challenging. Yeah. Uh, Melody, what, what led you to pursue a traditional bow? Um, a lot of things. So it really started, um, my husband had bought a crossbow. We had made this deal when we sold, I don't remember. I think we had like a trailer. Yeah, it was, it was an enclosed trailer that we decided we didn't want anymore. So when we sold it on Craigslist, we just split it up half and half. And we're like, okay, now we can both go get something we want without it coming out from like our regular budget. Right. And he went and got a crossbow and I got a bunch of woodworking tools because I love woodworking. And uh, two years after that, he had never even seen anything with his crossbow. And so he's like, this is dumb. I give up. And I was really into hunting at that point. So I didn't start hunting until I was 28. So that's seven years ago. And I kind of went fast track where I, I'm really bad at doing things halfway. It's like if I'm into it, I am all into it and I want to be the best at, at it. And that's how it was with hunting when I started. And um, so then I'm like, okay, well, if you're not going to use it, I'm going to use it. I want to I wanna get a deer. Because I had been really disenchanted with rifle hunting because I had taken a buck at like 120 yards. And when I got to him, I just felt really disappointed because I felt like I was just more of a shooter than a hunter. Because I was a great shot, but I knew that there was, I didn't know much about deer. I knew that anybody could have done what I did had they been in my my place with like any kind of shooting ability. There was no like nothing that set me apart as a hunter, I guess. And so I wanted to hunt differently. So I picked up that crossbow and I went out there, but I still, I don't know, it just wasn't, I, I realized how ignorant I was and um, I made a bad shot on an eight point buck. Cause of course my first time going out there, even to the stand, my husband and I had both set up together that he had never seen anything from an eight point buck came in. And at this point, I didn't, I didn't even understand fully the rut. Cause like I said, you don't know what you don't know. And like, I didn't grow up in a house that was, you know, all about hunting or anything. And so, um, I had never even heard the term rut before other than like, you know, a rut in a road or something like that. And, um, so I went out there on November 4th, crashing through the woods and this big buck comes in you know, all puffed out and looking for a fight. And in, in hindsight, I look at that 
opportunity that I was given and I get so frustrated with myself for not having prepared better before I went into the woods to really know my prey and understand what I was doing. So I made a bad shot on it because I hadn't practiced a whole lot with that crossbow. I just assumed that because I could hit the bullseye repeatedly at 20 yards, I was good enough to go. But there's all the different, you know, um, yardage bubbles on the inside of that scope. And so um, I actually didn't even kill him. And I got a picture of him the next year on my trail camera with the arrow wound. You can see I just hit the very top of his back strap and I tracked him for hours and then I had a, a farmer saw me wandering around in his fields and came out and like looked at it. it. Turns out he was a bow hunter. He looked at the type of blood and the blood trail. And then he was like, this deer is not dead. And at that point, we gave up that trail and I put away the crossbow and never picked it up again. And this said, told my husband, I am only hunting with a traditional bow from here on out. And everybody thought I was nuts because we didn't know anybody who hunted that way. And I mean ridicule for it because I had people teasing me that I was going to start just wanting to throw rocks at deer next and stuff like that but I just started reading and realizing that you know these modern weapons are just that they're only a thing of our modern society throughout all of the rest of history primitive weapons are what put meat on the table and if they could do it with the technology that I have in advancing even these primitive weapons, I could probably do it. It just, I knew I was going to probably have to work a lot harder for it. And I would have to really become a proficient hunter and not just a good shooter. And that's really what drove me to the traditional bow was realizing that I was taking with a rifle, with a crossbow, with any of those weapons that really increase your ability to get, um, to get something hunting while um, decreasing I guess, your impact as a person on the weapon, you know, so I wanted something that relied more on me. So if I messed it up, it was me. It wasn't my weapon. I don't know if any of that's making sense, but I, I just really wanted to be in the equation of I want it to be difficult and I want the victory to be better. I want to have to be skilled to do it. I don't want this to be something everybody can do. That makes perfect sense. And I love that explanation and reasoning. I feel, I mean, I want to hear what Lisa has to say, but to me, when I hear all of that, like, gosh, I would love to be that person. I would love to be like you. And the idea of the the time and the commitment in conjunction with the obligation I have to my daughter and, you know, our family writ large, I, how do you do it? <laughs> well, um, I think the best way to explain like the dynamic of my family is that it's not hunting and archery isn't my thing. It's our family. And we do archery, like with my kids, it's a part of our day. We do it together a lot. We, I mean, even it's, I, I basically tell everyone that if you hang around me long enough, it, you're going to get it because it's contagious. And my dad, every time my dad would come over, I'd put a bow in his hands and we'd go out and we'd shoot. And he just started enjoying it. And then he ended up buying a bow. And then he ended up upgrading his bow. And then he joined Traditional Archery League with me. And he started doing 3D shoots with me. And now this year he's planning, he brought his own broadheads and he's planning on hunting deer with me this fall. And my dad grew up in downtown Chicago. So it's not like he's, you know, a woodsman from the get-go. But if you're passionate about something and you just pursue it and you share it with people, I just have found that it's really catchy. Passion is really catchy. 
And um, so with my kids, it's not really, it's not really a balance because I'm not making a choice. Like I have to either have my kids or hunt or my kids or archery. It's something we all do together. My, all of my kids, except the three-year-old, yeah, four, well, she's four now, have been hunting with me. And the only reason she hasn't is because I just have so many to get down the line that it's difficult to take the one who I know is just not going to enjoy it as much. I've brought her out back when she was able to fit in a backpack, but she has never been like ground hunting with me. Okay. I, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. we're back. So Melody, before the break, you had talked about taking each, well, almost all of your kids out hunting with you. And selfishly, I'm interested my daughter's about 14 months old right now. So I'm interested in what this season's going to look like. Last season was tough when she was real, real little. How can you talk a little bit about your experiences there? Yeah, well, like I said, I didn't start hunting until I was 28. And I'm 35 now. And my oldest daughter is 11 and almost 12. And so, I mean, I, I didn't start hunting until she was already, you know, almost six years old. So she immediately from the very first, uh, actually it was the second time, but my first season, um, they, she, she went out in the stand with me and we just, we started learning hunting together. So that was a little different, like we would watch YouTube videos on understanding deer together, like all of my kids and I, because I didn't, I didn't grow up knowing this stuff, you know? And so when they, um, when they started showing an interest in it also, I jumped on it and, um, she actually, let's see, I think it was 2019 that last year I used a crossbow. Um, she was in the stand with me when we got a deer and ever since then, her biggest goal is to get one, you know, and, um, as far as like the dynamic goes, like I said, you just really have to, ex um, modify your expectations. And I think sharing, sharing the victory is a really, really big deal. So like this last time I got a deer, I didn't even start tracking it until the kids were with me, even though I could have, you know, I, I wanted it to be like this shared joy in everything. And just, I don't know, making an effort of, of bringing them in on whatever it is they can handle. All of my kids even help processing. So we do all the processing of our deer and of the pigs and of the rabbits and everything. And the kids are a part of that from the very beginning. And that's twofold. One of it is we want them involved in the process because then they, the more they're exposed to it in our opinion, the more addicted they get to it. And also we want them to really have an appreciation of what it takes to put meat on the table. You know, it's not for us. It's not just going to the store and grabbing it. So 
I don't know if that answered what you were saying at all, but um, as far as like how it looks when I take them hunting, I can give you that, that rundown too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, all of this is great. And Lisa, feel free to jump in at any point, but I'm, I'm just soaking it up. So please share whatever, okay. share whatever well, knowledge you have. For, for deer hunting, I'm not going to take my kids up into a stand unless it's a ladder stand like a double ladder stand that they can be safe in. And so I think I've only done that one time. Um, and that was in a, in a double ladder stand together. The rest of them, I just build ground blinds and I try to make them really easy access. Um, for my son's eighth birthday last year, I had built two different ground blinds and um, we went out there bright and early in the morning and got in. And one of the most important things, if you want to hunt with kids, is to bring snacks that aren't loud. And so I learned ahead of time from trying this and failing to open my son's snacks and wrap them in saran wrap so that we weren't crinkling plastic. And that way it's a lot quieter. And then I also brought um, an audiobook with little headphones for him because inevitably they get bored before I do. And with that, he would just, when he would get tired, he actually fell asleep about an hour into it. You know, his seven, seven-year-old boy, he, he laid down, he fell asleep. And when he woke up, he was ready to go and he wanted to go on a stalk. And so I was like, okay, I, my goal today is relationship with my son. It's the peak of the rut. His birthday is November 4th. Um, but I don't care. You know, I want, I want him to experience this. So I'm like, okay, let's go on a stock. So we, we got out and we stocked up to this great. So I have like the land all mapped out and from the ground blind to the top of this little hide that I had at the top of this cornfield, we could, you know, stay in with the, the wind was good and everything. It actually turned out to be the most amazing stock we've ever done. So I'm really glad he made that choice. Cause we, we got up to this hide and right away we barely sat down and this, you know, rack of 10 points comes up over the hill and he's sitting there with binoculars, just freaking out and hyperventilating. He's never seen a buck in real life and, or, in, you know, a live buck in person. Yeah. And then we see that one go feeding off in the different direction. And so we take that cause there was no shot opportunity where I was, but this buck was maybe 50 yards off. It was pretty close. And he goes feeding off in another direction. So we go down to get a better vantage point. And as soon as we get to this better vantage point, I told him, you stay here with the binoculars and you watch. And mommy's going to try to stock up. And I started and I, lo I remember looking back and he's got his little head poking out of the grass with the binoculars oh and just gosh. this big goofy grin on his face. He was so excited. And I get about 30 yards off from him. And the biggest rack I've ever seen on an eight-point deer, eight-point buck, comes up over the hill. And I just froze. And I just stood still. And the, this buck, can, he just feeding on some corn. And he looks over at me. And he licks his nose. Flicks his tail. Can't quite figure out what's going on because the wind is in my face. And he just keeps eating. And I'm like, okay, his head is down. I'm going to try to just close the little gap I can. And I took a few more steps forward and I was at the point where I could take a shot and he looked up again and that other 10 point buck came back over the hill, looked over at that one and they both, just, that was in the wrong wind and they both just booked it out of there. So I didn't even get a shot, but 
I got back to my son and he was like shaking with like buck fever. It was, he could not have had a better birthday present, even if I had gotten the deer, I think like that was the cool, he says it was the coolest experience of his life. Oh my gosh. And if you don't ever, like if you're not willing to, I don't know, quote unquote, ruin your hunt because you're going to bring a kid with and it's not going to look the way you might want it to, you're going to miss out on so much because that joy from him made the fact that I didn't get close enough for a shot not even matter. Like I felt like I had won. No. I think I'm shaking from that story. (laughs) Yeah, that was incredible. That was awesome. Well, it was definitely in the top, you know, five moments for me so far of of hunting. Um, And most of those moments have been with my kids because they just, you know, they're, they bring me so much joy. So to see them becoming passionate about something I am, but also learning these life skills and all of that is just really important. Melody, I'm curious uh, where you hunt. It sounds like maybe it's private land most of the time. Yeah. It is. Um, so I, I made a connection with a, a local farmer um, where I found, I, I basically saw the land I wanted to hunt and I went on base maps and I looked up who it was and I talked to the neighbors to figure out, you know, where does he live? You know, is he receptive to hunters? And they said, well, you can certainly try. He's a super nice guy. So I went over there and I met him and um, I had just found a bunch of bear scat on the edge of my property that was kind of by his land. And so I showed him all these bear scat pictures and bear tracks, and he was super interested in that. And then I told him, you know, how I hunt. And um, he was he was pretty surprised because he's like, well, I mean, I think I can let you do this because the likelihood of you getting anything is pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, um, he's been an awesome resource because he has maybe uh, 160 acres within you know, all of it's within a couple miles of my house. So I can get out when my husband gets home from work and hunt real quick, you know, and that's how I ended up getting the deer, the spot and stock deer last year was I only had two hours to hunt in the evening and that's all I needed. Um, so I, on my own volition, am not very good at just going to talk to people, but my husband is super extroverted and he made me get in the van and we're driving to this guy's farm. And I'm like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not going to ask. Like, what if he says no? Then I'm going to be so embarrassed. And he's like, he wouldn't let it go. And then he sees the farmer standing outside. And I'm like, Michael, don't make me do this. And he drives over and opens the window. And he goes, my wife has a question for you. <laughs> and so he basically made me ask. But then I'm glad that he did. Because it turns out, like, this guy is the type of landover owner, like, hunters dream about. Where, like, he'll be driving by his fields and he'll text me and be like, hey, there's 10 turkeys on the west side headed towards the east if you want to head out there, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. And um, he'll give me his report of when he's in the field and be like, oh, yeah, they started coming out at five o'clock in the evening and they were, you know, feeding down to the south and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. Better than a trail camera. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I actually don't usually use trail cameras. I've only put them out like strategically if I'm going to be gone for a while and I'm not able to observe the patterns in person, then I'll put them out because I really want to see a a lot of the reason I put trail cameras out is because I want to see when the coyotes are active and what they're doing because we have so many coyotes around here. But I always like to be surprised by the deer. So I don't really want to pattern them that way. I prefer following, you know, finding rub lines, following tracks and being out there all year round and scouting and seeing what's out there myself 
I guess for me, a lot of the fun of the hunt and a lot of the victory of it is the connection, the connection with the animal and with nature and also just really the primal connection of the way that our ancestors used to do it and not doing it with any of kind of, I don't want to say cheating because it's not cheating. It's taking advantage of the current situation, which offers us technology, but I don't, I don't want that. Like I love the primal connection of doing things the way our ancestors used to before they had all these gadgets to make their lives easier. I can identify with that for sure. A lot of times in recent years, we ironically, my husband and I are both wildlife biologists, but because of our jobs, didn't have a lot of time to hunt. Um, And so when I was able to go out and get deer, it was usually with a rifle and I call it grocery shopping because it's really, you know, it's nice to be in the woods, but it's just about getting meat for the freezer really more than anything, more than there's less of the connection for me anyway, than what you're talking about, Melody. When you, when you use a rifle specifically? Yeah. I mean like in a rifle, you know, using a rifle from a stand that's established and especially like over a food plot, I did my, um, master's work on deer in Mississippi on some really large deer hunting properties. And so that was like a common scenario down there. And it wasn't how everybody hunted all the time, but that was kind of my first exposure to it moving down there. And I don't know, it's kind of like deluxe. (laughs) There's a, there's a level of separation there for sure. Yeah. And like, um, because you're from Minnesota, I don't know if you grew up hunting here, but you know, we can't put out bait piles. Right. Yep. yep. So even if I, even if I wanted to, I couldn't. Um, and it does really, I think it really changes the dynamic. Cause like, I'm pretty sure I was kind of frustrated last year on, on Instagram. I saw that like the largest buck taken, I think it was in Ohio. I don't remember. There was the largest buck that had been taken in one of the States, you know, and he was taken at, with a crossbow from a blind, at a feed pile. Mm. And I, I'm not, I don't want to knock people as far as like, I don't want to knock them personally because I went out there with a crossbow. You know, I, it's not like, it's not like I went out there thinking I was doing something bad because it, it, it wasn't, it's, it's a, it's just a web, it's an inanimate object, you know, it's the heart behind it. That's the, that's the issue. And, and for me, I look and I see that this magnificent deer you know, basically got shot on his way to the kitchen because that's where he eats every day. That's what he's been trained to do. And it's never been a danger until right then, you know, so his, all of his like finely tuned senses were turned off because of pattern, you know, but it, it wasn't a natural pattern. It just, it was all artificial and it just, it, so that's why it bothers me. Um, not because like, I think that hunter was a bad person because like, it's easy to do things, I think, without looking at it from all sides and think that your point of view, you know, have a lot of altruistic thinking about it where your point of view is the best. But I guess I just feel like the deer deserve more. And I maybe that's a little hokey sounding to say it that way. No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And I, I identify, I grew up hunting in Minnesota, deer hunting with my dad. And so I identify with a lot of what you're describing, Melody, but I think it's, since being in this position and I guess working around a lot of different parts of the country, I've really come to realize that hunting is very cultural for most people because most people are socialized to hunting through family members. And so it's kind of like this thing that's passed down and I don't know what you're getting at. I'm so glad that you're a guest and that we're recording this because one of the things that 
we strive to do as Artemis is to highlight different narratives, narratives that aren't talked about in, you know, the mainstream hunting community very much, like exactly what you're describing. Um, and I can say that like me personally, I am anti bait strictly because of disease transmission. (laughs) So like across the board, that is why I won't do it. But, um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a cultural element there that, and it shapes a lot of our lives, but certainly hunting as well. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think the, the bait debate is so hotly contested and, you know, people debate it over bear hunting and over deer hunting and everything like that. And I think in areas where the deer population is so heavily concentrated that you have a lot of problems with disease and starvation and overfeeding and all that stuff. I think it's a completely different debate than saying in Minnesota or Idaho or wherever, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I think we're all three on the same page. I have always been against baiting personally, and I know it's a slippery slope um, because it is against the law here, but over the years, I don't know. I've just really tried to ask myself, you know, whether it's baiting or, whatever you're doing, um, legal, hopefully. Um, I think it really comes down to, are you showing respect to that animal? Are you showing respect to the people before us? Um, you know, do you have good woodsmanship? Are you, um, you know, bringing up younger generations the way they should be in a respectful way, in a way that respects hunting, you know, and, for some people that can look differently, but I think, um, I think it's important that we really look at what we're doing, even if it is legal, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's respectful to the animal. Yeah. yeah and, for sure. and like, if you're using, if you're using bait as a replacement for skill or as a replacement for woodsmanship or whatever it is, that's to me a problem. If you're yeah. using you know, if you're using bait for whatever other reasons, I don't know. So I have, I have the opportunity to hunt and none of my kids are starving. You know, I'm not, I'm not living where I can't afford to buy meat, you know? And so I don't know, maybe somebody's out there and is like, well, if I don't dump this pile of corn on the ground and bring a deer home, you know, my kids are going to starve. I don't know. I'm not going to judge that person. Right. Right. You know, but I, I think we should, obviously I'm, I'm against everything that is not legal. And because like a lot of people, you know, people will rag on the DNR and all that kind of stuff, but there's a lot of research that goes into why things are the way they are. And like disease transmission being a big one. Like I remember I had to tell one of our neighbors, you know, you really shouldn't be feeding deer. And he goes, well, I'm not, I'm not hunting them. I just feed them because I like to see them in the yard. And I'm like, yeah, but that bait, that pile where they're going (laughs) is first of all, you're ruining their natural feeding pattern, but also if they're all eating out of the same thing and one of them has a disease, they're all going to get it. And, um, so he, he said he wasn't going to do it anymore, but we'll see. (laughs) Props to you, Melody. Keep up, keep up spreading the good word. Um, okay. So one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like you homeschool your kids. Is that accurate? That is correct. Okay. Lisa actually was talking, we were talking before this and she said they're maybe considering that in their future. So I'm sure Lisa has some questions specific to homeschooling, but I wonder if you could talk about how that impacts 
I don't want to keep coming back to the time element, but really the amount of time that you have to engage you and your family in things like archery. It opens me up to be so much more free to do things because I think a lot of people think that if they homeschool, they are bound to school hours being home with their kids and they can't do anything else. But the whole reason behind a lot of homeschooling is having some mobility and having some freedom. And so, like I said, I can wait until eight o'clock and be out in my deer stand and then come in and we can still fit a full day of school in. I, I am a very cautious person. Like I, even though I have an almost 12 year old, like I'm not, I'm not going to leave my kids home alone, like at all, because we live in the country. And if something happens, there's nobody right by here that could be a help, you know? And so I don't, I won't go out and leave my kids alone, but if my husband is, you know, here a little later in the morning, or if he's working nights and he's actually here, but he's just not awake, like that's, I'm, I'm fine with that because the property I hunt, I can literally see my house the entire time. So it's not, you know, I'm not going far anyway, but with homeschooling, I do have that flexibility. I'm not getting everybody up and getting them dressed and getting them fed and getting them either on the bus or dropping them off at school. They wake up and a lot of times they're still in their pajamas when they start school. There are a lot of days I try to make them kind of, I feel like if I make them get dressed and ready, then it's a little more formal where they can be like, okay, it's school time now. But it doesn't always happen because a lot of times we'll just start our day with reading out loud and they all just lay around with a cup of tea and listen. And we just kind of slowly ease into it that way. But also we don't spend any time waiting in lines. We don't spend any time um, registering or going through you know, a list of who's all there today or everybody turning in their homework or anything. It's very expedited because we don't have to wait for other people. It's just us. And a lot of people discount that aspect when they think of homeschooling because they think of a public school construct in a homeschool setting. And it's not, it's not that at all. So I was raised homeschooled and my husband was, um, he went to public school. And so he, he had a lot of, um, misgivings about homeschooling that, that he just, he just didn't, no, because, you know, homeschoolers are the butt of all the jokes, right? It's like, at least you weren't homeschooled or, you know, or you must be <laughs> homeschooled if you were awkward or anything like that. Like, well, there's awkward people that are homeschooled and awkward people that are public schooled. So it's not like you can blame one or the other. Absolutely. But um, so he was trying to, he was getting really a little nervous by the fact that we were done with school every day by noon. And so one day we sat down and I was like, okay, can you tell me what your day looked like? when you went to school as like, let's say when you were in fourth grade or whatever. And so he went through and he told me what his day was like. And I was like, okay, now all of this stuff that you mentioned, these sections of time, we don't have to do because we don't have a lunch line. We don't have lockers. We don't have whatever, you know? And he was like, oh yeah, I guess, you know? So um, anyway, with that being said, we get, we, our day is a lot shorter for fitting in the same, if not more amount of material. And um, so then our, our afternoons are largely open to do things. And we do a lot of my kids. My kids are so cool. I love them so much, but they're also just really cool. And they love archery. My daughter just won the um, cadet title for Wisconsin traditional archery. And they just, they shoot their bows a lot. Today, they, today my daughters helped me make canned salsa, freeze corn. They did the corn 100% by themselves and make nectarine jam all this morning, wow. you know, and like they're skilled. 
they can do so much because our lives are very much revolving around the things we do. And my husband and I both share the same mindset that our kids are coming with us to do stuff. We're not doing it and leaving the kids at home. Like they are capable human beings. And I don't want to ever say, well, you know, you're just a kid. Oh gosh. I love that. I feel like I work from home and I have since I started this job before I had my daughter. And one of the things that I really treasure about that is being able to wake up in the morning. Like she wakes up and then we're awake and we do whatever we do. And like, I haven't woken up to an alarm. I mean, except my daughter for, you know, a year and a half or more. And I, I just, I love that. I love not having to drive somewhere. And like, you're talking about just the waiting in lines and kind of like the droney parts of other days. I, I really appreciate not having that. Well, I can say such a gift. Um, today was my daughter's first day in kindergarten and they've been in kind of like a part-time daycare. So we've had to get up early, but, uh, she had to be at school at seven 30 and I just couldn't help, but feel like, you know, for a four and five year old, uh, I don't have a problem with structure and schedule and we all get up early, but I just thought, man, uh, it's just hard on the little kids. Uh, and today was our first day, so it's going to be a long road through kindergarten. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of getting more perspective on, you know, still getting up early and being productive, but, um, you know, your the public school schedule really is, doesn't line up with probably what your little kid needs at that age. Yeah, we have, I, I've done a lot of study into how I want my kids to be structured at that age. And the the thing I've just really come away from, for, from my perspective, which I, you know, I'm only my kid's parent and I don't ever, I try to stay away from making any blanket statements where people would feel like what I'm saying for my kids should apply to theirs too. Sure. But I've just found that my kids are not ready for structure. They're not ready for reading. They're not ready for a lot of stuff until later. And so with my oldest daughter, you know, I had this plan where she was going to read at a certain age because I learned to read very young. My mom says that I was reading when I was three. Um, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I don't remember. (laughs) And, but like I, I had this plan, you know, you're going to do this. You're going to be in music. I'm a musician and I really want my kids to be proficient musicians also. And then it just kind of didn't pan out because nothing stuck. And I was getting so discouraged. And I remember reaching out to someone and being like, what do I do if my kids can't learn? And she's like, you back off. I'm like, I'm like oh, <laughs> I, <didn't... laughs> I was, she's like, they're not ready for it. And you're going to just meet resistance. You're all going to get discouraged. Somebody's going to walk away crying and, and nothing good is going to happen from it. And so with my, um, the next kids, I was like, okay, I'm going to wait. And this is going to be a test because I have five of you. I already messed up on one. Now we're going to see, <laughs> you know, what happens with the next one. And one that I go back and was like, okay, you know, I'm sorry I pushed you so hard to try to do what I wanted you to do. We're just going to chill. We're going to read a lot of books together, you know, and I'm not going to make this happen. And then with my other daughter, it was like, that one was a complicated situation because at the time I didn't know she had an undiagnosed spinal cord problem and she has a connective tissue disorder. So she actually couldn't do things. 
and eventually um, it was corrected by surgery and stuff like, and lots and lots of therapy. So then I was like, okay, well, that wasn't a very good test. So then I tried with my son. Um, just I didn't bother teaching him his letters. I didn't teach him his numbers or how to read until he started showing signs of wanting to do it. And he was almost seven years old when he was like, hey, mom, do you think I could learn how to read? And within one month, he was reading. Like, you know, it wasn't he had all his ABCs memorized. He was doing basic math. He got a year ahead in math. And now he's a, an entire grade ahead of where of. Um, so he's in third grade. He's eight. And he's he just started his fourth grade math book at the end of last year. So he was still in second grade, technically. And I just think there's a lot to be said of not pushing too much too soon. So with my other daughter, I waited. She asked when she was five. She started reading within a couple months. She's reading chapter books and she just turned seven. So I feel like for us, it really worked to just not expect too much too soon and just kind of let them not worry about anything. You're just a kid. Just be a kid. We'll get to the school stuff when you're ready for it. Just like taking them hunting. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's some parallels here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because there's nothing, nothing in our house is really like... I don't know. I don't want to say it's not like mutually exclusive from each other. You know, like hunting is a part of school. It is a part of learning because they learn the natural world around them and they learn to be observant. You know, they learn the weather patterns and how to read, how to read the sky and the ground. And we talk, you know, they're learning botany. They, we, we talk plant identification. You know, they know more about the different rhythms of how deer exist in the world and what they choose to eat than most adults probably know. And it's all because of spending time in nature and talking about it and making it a regular part of our conversation. So I don't say, you know, that's not a part of their school or their learning, because I think learning is so much more than just a classroom. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense to me. So Melody, you talked about the story of um, your, well, all of the stories that you've shared today have been amazing, uh, but I would love it if you could tell us about one of your favorite moments in the field that we haven't already covered. <clears throat> okay, well, I think, so last fall on October 2nd, uh, we had a real rough time. My brother was gravely injured in an accident and... Um, he went from being an elite athlete to being in a wheelchair and lost half his left foot and all the bones in his right ankle got crushed. It was just a really bad accident. And then that same day, my grandma actually passed away. So it was like this, you know, at first it was a, it was a long day of, is my brother going to live or not? And, um, he's still, he's still here <laughs> minus some body parts. But, um, after that time I ended up taking his kids in between my, um, my sister-in-law's mom and myself, we watched their two and three-year-old kid. And, you know, I, I have a three-year-old, five-year-old, it was seven-year-old, nine-year-old, and 10-year-old at that time. So I have a lot of kids of my own. And taking them in, you know, it just, it was a really rough month for us, you know, and I just, I love my niece and nephew so much. And like, they fit in our family so well. It was so great to have them here. But just the turmoil of what was going on with my brother in the background was just really hard. And they wanted to be with mom and dad, but they couldn't. And so then um, October 29th, I brought them back to, to where my brother was because he was out of the hospital enough that he could be around his kids because the chance of them injuring him by trying to hug him or something like that was really low at that point. 
So um, I brought his kids back to him. And then that same day, I ended up going, flying home. And my husband was like, you are really stressed out. You need to go out in the woods. And so I went and I got my bow and went out to this cornfield that I like to see. I see the deer in it all the time at sunset. And, you know, my, like I said, my brother was an elite athlete. Like he was really, um, really fit and really active. And so I remember sitting on the edge of this field and taking a video of it and showing, sending it to my brother and being like, this is my plan of attack. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I think is going to happen. And I laid it all out. And then I started, you know, just going for it and everything played out exactly as I said. And that's when I got that deer on the spot in stock and, um, the bow I was using in order to, as a, just a way of saying, thank you for taking his kids during that time. Um, he bought me a new bow and I had only been using it for like a week at that point, but I brought it with me that day and, um, I was able to get that deer with it that day. And it just, it was like the, the culmination of just a lot of really hard situations, um, kind of coming to a close, it felt like, and just, um, this significance of doing something really hard, you know, most people aren't going to get a spot and stock whitetail and doing it well, where the deer, there was a 90 yard walking blood trail, double lung. I just, it was one of the most surreal moments of my life, but then also to be able to go back and see I had made this plan and everything went exactly as I wanted. It just it was like, after having so many like hard hits that month, it just felt really awesome. Oh, I can imagine. That sounds amazing. Wow. That was a great story. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just like enraptured here. I keep forgetting that I'm the host. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, typically we do a segment called hits and misses. We're getting close to an hour. So I want to wrap this up, but I think it would be fun to do a quick round of hits and misses. So what have you been aiming for and how did it go? Lisa, can you start us off? Sure. Um, well, I'm going to say my hit, uh, hit or miss this week is my oldest started kindergarten today in public schools. Um, and it went much better than I thought it would. She did great, which I expected. Uh, I thought I would be a mess, but, um, it was a good day. I was, I was happy, not hardly any tears. So I'll call that a win for today. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Melody, what have you been aiming for? Okay, well, um, going back to the thing with my brother then, because he couldn't do stuff anymore, like he just wants to run, you know, but he can't. And I started realizing that I wasn't pushing myself enough physically, and I felt like um, I needed to do more. So I, I started this challenge. I don't know if you've ever heard of the 75 hard challenge, but I wanted to just become the best version of myself physically and mentally that I could. And so it involves just, you know, a lot of working out and reading nonfiction books and drinking a gallon water a day and stuff like that. And I started doing that and I started to see so many changes in my body. And as a 35 year old woman who's had six kids, like I just, I don't, I want to age well. And as I started doing it, it became less for my brother and more for me because I realized I need to take care of myself. And if I want to be like, there's so many jokes about people who are like, Oh, you white tail fit, you know, because all you have to do is walk to a deer stand. Um, <laughs> you know, and like, I just, I don't want to be that hunters are supposed to be athletes. And I, so I, I've started just really pushing myself in, in the last, I don't know, six months, I've actually dropped 
like over 30 pounds, but also just built a lot of muscle. And like, I look back at pictures and I'm like, I didn't realize I even had any weight to lose. Like I've always been a, you know, fit, active person. And it was, it's just been really forcing myself to get out there, to be working out daily, to be, you know, not eating sugar. I stopped drinking alcohol the beginning of this year, even though like I never drank like a lot. I just, I wanted that. I wanted to set a lot of limits on myself to make sure that I was pushing myself to be the best version of myself that I could be. So this year has just been a lot of really intentionality of pushing myself towards that goal. And it's so, it's so like addicting, I guess, to start seeing the results of pushing yourself hard every day. Man, this, this title of this episode should be Inspiration by Melody. <laughs> Absolutely. I was That's just thinking, she's so inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say my, uh, I have a, a miss. Yesterday, I harvested all of the Brussels sprouts from the garden that I planted. Oh, I started them as seeds back in February. And they sucked. I mean, they're all ruined. I had cabbage worms that I picked off. Like I had like three waves of them. I think they're cabbage worms that I picked off. And in the end, I think I left them out there way too long. None of the buds got to the size that I would want to eat. And I harvested them all yesterday and brought them in the house. I'm like, these just smell like these have to be composted. (laughs) So next year I might experiment with netting and I don't know what else, but my garden as a whole did wonderful this year, but the Brussels sprouts, they were a miss. So anyway, I only shared like a hit. Like, I mean, I have, I have like dozens of misses outside of that. So (laughs) everybody does, but I, I appreciate the one that you shared for sure. Um, yeah. And Melody, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like this was a, this was an incredible conversation. No, I was really happy to be here. I, I think it's really, really cool what you guys are trying to do with the podcast and all that. So, well, we appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Thank mm-hmm. you.